The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Primal Body, Primal Mind. Your host, Nora Gedgaudis, is here to take you on a fun-filled and informational journey through the mind and your body with a focus on neurofeedback and healthy nutrition and what it can do for you, your family, and friends. Now, here's your host, Nora Gedgaudis. Well, good Wednesday morning to all of you tuned in today. El Cinco de Mayo. Welcome to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio. As always, I'm your host, Nora Gedgaudis, and... I am more pleased than usual, uh, thrilled actually, to, to be here today, because uh, today I have as my guest Lear Keith, author of an incredible and important book, The Vegetarian Myth. Now, I've been looking forward to this ever since I read it, and I could not be a bigger fan of this really uh, magnificent work. So by way of disclosure, uh, I too once spent, well, really just a couple of years uh, eating a vegetarian diet. Never really went full bore vegan, but but I did that for all or most of the same reasons that Lierre describes in her own book. Now, I grew up caring passionately about animals, my health, and the environment. And for a good part of my life, I worked for, with, and on behalf of animals. I was a tirelessly driven member of the Sierra Club Wildlife Task Force as a child not even 10 years old. And I also spent time working uh, full-time, actually, for Greenpeace, going door-to-door, and I worked in some other organizations, too. So on top of that, I've done uh, veterinary work, and I've also worked in the field of wildlife science, most specifically with wolves. So an appreciation of nature has always been a deeply important part of my life and even an inherent part of my natural sense of spirituality. Life has always mattered to me, and health has always mattered to me. So opening Lear's book was a little like reliving a part of myself in many ways. Um, I identified with and was really deeply moved uh, to tears in some places with the sensitivity and depth of her insight and passion for the life of the planet and for all of the things that matter and really that should matter to us all. Uh, Lear's book is exhaustively well-researched and referenced in a way that tells anyone loud and clear that the truth matters to her even if the real truth wasn't what she wanted to believe in her heart of hearts. In the end, I think Lear has exposed the truth in the pages of her book that should really be read by every thinking, feeling, and caring person in this world, vegetarian or not. I agree with the reviewer that called her book uh, one of the most important environmental books of our time. It's that important, um, I think. So Lear's book is... It's not a cynical diatribe on the evils of vegetarianism, not at all. It's a conscious, thoughtful, insightful, deeply compassionate, and actually really an intimately personal um, exploration of why what we eat and how we eat matters, and how to eat in a manner that is ultimately in alignment with the cycle of life instead of somehow artificially removed from it. Well, Lear Keith is a writer, one hell of a writer, actually. (laughs) 
a speaker, a farmer, and what she self-describes as a radical feminist activist. Uh, she's the author of two novels and is currently co-authoring another book about environmentalism. I could not be more honored, uh, truly honored, really, in a heartfelt way, to welcome someone I think of as a soul sister, Lear Keith, to the show. Welcome, Lear. Well, thank you, Nora. That's one of the most incredible introductions I've ever had. Oh, really uh, well, touched. step lightly, Missy. You're obviously in hostile territory here. <laughs> <laughs> well... You know, I don't know if you've noticed, but but if you look very deeply into the cave painting on the cover of your book, you actually see the cover of mine. How's that for synchronicity? I know. It's so incredible. When I first saw your book, I was like, wait a minute. This is my book in miniature. It's the exact same art. It was so fun. It's the same colors, too. It's got the black, and then the, yeah, it's perfect. Yep, yep. It's just sort of, you know, and I was looking at the corner. I remember when I first saw your book, I looked at it, and I thought, wow, there's something kind of strangely familiar about that. And I thought, oh, you have a cave here? painting, too. And then I thought, no, wait, there's something a little too familiar about that. And I'm looking, and it's like, wow, that's where my painting, that's why I had such a hard time finding that picture. Anyway, um, when I went looking for it, because I wasn't looking with a magnifying glass, I guess. But you anyway. Have the mi- you have the mini version. I have I the do. version. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. So uh, anyway, let, so, so talk to me about your journey. Really, what inspired your initial foray into veganism, and what was your reasoning, and, and where did it all lead you, sort of, in a nutshell? Yeah, well, I have, I think, a similar life history to yours, where even as a child, I was extremely concerned about the environment, and about the planet, and about animals, and, you know, any kind of animal suffering just made me so unhappy. Um, I even remember, you know, we would go every year to the uh, Natural Science Museum in Philadelphia, and they have a lot of uh, stuffed kind of dioramas, you know. Of, um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's this one that's a fox with a bird in its mouth, and every year when we went by that one, I would burst into tears. Uh. And I dreaded going to that museum because I knew I was going to have to see the fox eating the bird. Yeah. Um, you know, and in one way, it's very sweet, and in another, it's, it's sort of poignant in its own way on a bigger scale because how could I be a child of age 8 or 9 or 10 and not know that animals eat other animals and that that's, that that's an inherent part of nature and that it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bad moment to die, but it has to happen for life to continue. Well, that every single it. creature yeah, is eating like something else. Of which we're a part, right? Yeah, and yeah. I didn't know that. So all I knew was that animals were suffering and uh, that I, I didn't want to see it and I didn't, I didn't want it to happen. Um, anyway, so I, I, could, you know, I could really relate to some of the things you were saying in the introduction. So when I was 16, I met somebody who was a vegan um, and her whole family was into it. So she started telling me all about the reasons why. And, you know, it's a very complete package. You can save the planet, you can feed all these hungry people, and you will improve your health if you simply remove all the animal products. And I didn't know better, so it sounded like a great deal to me. It sounded like all the things I cared about. I cared about justice, I cared about sustainability, um, and I certainly cared about animal suffering. And, you know, the things that I learned subsequently about... Um, factory farming only shored up my oh, commitment at that point. I mean, it's horrible what happens to animals. Yep. So, you know, all of it sort of comes together in this very neat little package where if you just do this one thing, uh, you will solve all these problems. And so I took it up uh, ferociously, became a vegan when I was 16. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think for a lot of vegans, this is true, where it, it, it becomes a really totalizing identity. So it's not just what you eat. You know, but it becomes who you are. Absolutely. The, the, the real problem with that is that then when you come upon information that is maybe counter to your ideology, it's really hard to engage with it because it's so threatening. Yeah. You feel like your own sense of, your sense of self is being threatened. Absolutely. So every step along the way, uh, 
you know, I was given counter-information to this, and I, I rejected it out of hand. I would not investigate any further, and I would immediately forget what I was being told. And this includes a biology professor, you know, who said the sentence that I still remember, which was, the moment you put a plow to soil, you degrade that soil. And I couldn't let it be true, so I right. just forgot what he told me. Um, and he was a farmer himself, and, you know, he went around the world uh, trying to help people recover their land from agriculture and, you know, provide food for people in local areas. I and mean, this was his life project. And, you know, he tried to explain to me what was wrong with my perspective, and I couldn't, I couldn't absorb it. You know, I'd been a vegan for four years at that point, and it was, it was just too intense. You know, it was so primary to me that, you know, that I had to believe this and I had to do it. And there are cult-like elements to this identity and to this community. Um, and, you know, I know that people are offended when I say that, but there's a lot of us out here now who are saying it, having been through it. We know what it feels like to be in that world and how right. hard it is to get out. So I live, you know, I live in Portland, Oregon, and, you know, it, I mean, vegetarianism and veganism is, is, you know, very much alive and well here. It's, uh, you know, there's a lot of it in the community, and, of course, we have a very well, by and large, a fairly well-educated community and a, and a very activistic community, and um, there are a lot of things about being here that, that are great, but... You know, everybody, I think, goes into vegetarian or veganism for um, one or more of the same ideals that you and I did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm sympathetic to that. Uh, yeah, you but, know, I always like, I like to start by saying that the, the values that underlie the vegetarian ethic are not at issue. Right. So, you know, justice and sustainability and compassion and anything that questions human hubris, I mean, those are things that are absolutely basic to the new world that we need to create, and we're not going to get there without those values. So it's not a problem of values. We have the values down. It's the information that we've got wrong. Right. Absolutely. Well, so in your book, oh, okay, so... Um, so you were a vegetarian, for, you say, or vegan for, for 20 yeah, years, yeah. right? And, uh, and, of course, you're not anymore, so why is that? Um, ultimately, oh. because my health failed, and it okay. failed catastrophically, which I think is um, one of the only reasons that uh, most vegans stop being vegan. I, I mean, when you are a vegan, like I said, it's really totalizing, and it takes a lot to shake you loose. Um, and, you know, in my case, it just wasn't a choice anymore. So, but it took me 20 years, you know, to be able to face that. I mean, it was, it's, and the damage is permanent. A lot of what I've done to myself is never going to go away. Mm. Um, and then really that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I don't want another generation of people, idealistic people, uh, the people who care. I don't want them to damage themselves the way that I have done. Oh, and there, there they don't a, need to. There is a, there is a <laughs> rampant problem right now with yeah. um, lots of young girls. I mean, I know, and we're talking even children. And, and it, it's like all the rage now in young teenagers yeah. And what not to take up this sort of, uh, the, you know, the, this whole vegetarian or vegan uh, approach to things. And, uh, you know, it, it, there's a, <laughs> I mean, I'm deeply concerned about it. Deeply, deeply concerned about it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you only get one chance to build a human brain and exactly. they're not getting the proper nutrition and it will never go well from this point forward. Um, there's, I mean, the, the, the damage that's happening to children across the board, you know, both from the kind of low-fat pyramid, you know, ridiculousness that the USDA has come up with, and, right. and then, you know, even further into things like, you know, the, the left taking up veganism so hard, harshly, yeah. um, it's just tremendous damage to children, and, and I'm very, very concerned as well. Like, you know, Michelle Obama and the whole, you know, childhood obesity thing, I mean, I looked over the diet that 
they are suggesting from the White House, and it's a low-fat diet for children. Right, And exactly. I can't tell you how much, I mean, I cried when I read it. It was like, yeah. you're going to feed children skim milk. Oh, good. You know? right. Well, exactly. That will There's... help. Let's just increase the ADD a little bit more out there. There is nothing more important to a developing brain and nervous system than fat. Know. You know, and not we're not just talking omega three. We're talking all the natural fats. Your yeah. body just isn't made up of one type of fat. You know, and uh, like you say, you don't get a second chance at building that brain and nervous system. There is some damage that cannot be undone. Some yeah. that can, but there's an awful lot that cannot be undone. And so, yeah, this, these, this, the message in your book is so incredibly important from that perspective. And, of course, you know, I worry about it, too, because Whole Foods now is yeah. um, apparently yeah. planning to, uh, you know, start promoting vegetarianism and veganism um, for some inexplicable reason. Um, I, yeah, I, I wrote them a letter. I think a lot of us did, but I don't know that we're going to have any effect. I mean, once it gets that ideological, you know, with people, uh, it's there's no backing down. And well, so, and it's there's the know. corporate interest behind it. There's some of money in this, so I know. you just kind of have to follow that aspect of it if you really want to get it. Yeah, people don't understand this, that you're really only going to get quality dairy, quality meat, quality eggs from very, very small-scale local farmers. That's and nice. that's not who, you know, Whole Foods is, is partnering with. It's gigantic multinational corporations that control the world food supply right. and some of it's organic and they'll put a cute label on it with a teddy bear or something but it's the exact same people who are destroying the world it's got nothing to do with sustainable local food and it's not producing food that's particularly edible i don't care if it's organic it's still just cheap carbohydrate in a plastic bag people right <laughs> or, or asparagus that comes from peru in february right? yeah right yeah. that was that right so, yeah which you know um I, we have to go to our first break, and I think okay. we probably should do that. And uh, so when we come back, we're going to get into this a lot more. Um, everybody, you're listening to uh, Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio. I'm Nora Gaddis, and we are talking today with the author of The Vegetarian Myth, Lear Keith. So please stick around. We'll be back in just a minute. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Want to learn more about neurofeedback? Want to find a trained clinician for yourself or for a loved one? Or maybe you are a professional looking to offer this powerful, non-invasive technique to improve results for your toughest clients. At EEG Info, we are the leading provider of neurofeedback resources, videos, and training for the next generation of neurofeedback professionals. If you want to improve symptoms of emotional and behavioral dysfunction, this non-invasive approach is the answer you've been looking for. Neurofeedback is successful in helping people of all ages achieve a feeling of greater health and well-being. Visit us at eeginfo.com today to learn more about neurofeedback or to find a local clinician who can help you or someone you love. Unlock the full potential of your brain today. Visit eeginfo.com. What is the delirious cure? Your health is at stake. Learn the secrets that Johnny found. You need to know what you can do to prevent serious illness and live the best life. Tune in to hear the health experts on the Delirious Cure radio program with host Johnny Delirious. In one hour, you'll learn about the empowerment of your good health and how it will benefit you now. Learn the secrets that help Johnny recover from experts, doctors, and PhDs detailing effective but uncommon modalities. Tune in into the Delirious Cure, Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're tuned in to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio with host Nora Gedgaudis. Got a question for Nora about today's show? The phone lines are open now at 1-866-472-5792. Toll free, 1-866-472-5792. Now back to our show. Here's Nora. Well, welcome back to the show. We're talking today with Lear Keith, the author of The Vegetarian Myth. And uh, when we left off, we were talking about... Um, well, basically, the concerns that we have about the uh, the trends in in young girls and children adopting vegetarianism and veganism uh, as part of some you know popular fad that seems to be happening nowadays. Um, but in your book, Lear, you brilliantly broke down and you fully address all of the reasons a person chooses a vegetarian or vegan way of life and. And it's a way of life, really, and more than just simply a way of eating. So why, and, you know, and also why those things are um, or aren't what they may have first appeared. You know, you look at the moral reasons, the political reasons, the health or nutritional reasons, and all of the higher uh, ideals that a person might grasp for. So starting, you know, with the whole moral issue, talk to me about some of the moral ideas uh, to begin with and your exploration of that. Yeah, you know, this is way bigger than what's dead on your plate. And when I was 16, it seemed very simple. Was there a dead animal on my plate or not? Um, And, you know, that's simple. It's a simple argument, and I can see its appeal. Um, The problem is that, you know, we need bigger information in order to address the amount of death that's really happening. So we have to understand what agriculture is, because agriculture is actually a war against the planet. Uh, You take a piece of land, you clear every living thing off it, and I mean down to the bacteria, and then you plant it to human use. So uh, first thing is, all the plants and animals that should live there have nowhere to go. They've been pushed off their habitats. The habitat's been utterly destroyed, essentially to grow a monocrop of humans. Um, And it means they've got nowhere to go. And all of that is a very pretty way to say extinction. Um, Right now, 99% of the old-growth forests are gone. 98% of the prairies have been eradicated. And almost as many of the wetlands. And this is all in the service of agriculture. It means taking over. Okay, an entire continent, you know, one by one by one. That's what agriculture has done. Um, so when we talk about, you know, the death that's on the plate, you're talking about an entire continent. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about all the species. You're not just talking about individuals. You're talking about entire species. So the vice talking about massive human overpopulation as a result yeah, of agriculture. Yeah, and that's what it leads to. Um, the, you know, when you, the hunter-gatherers and uh, fisher peoples and uh, even horticulturalists generally have a very, very uh, tight correspondence between the number of adults and the number of children. They know how many dependents, you know, they need so many adults for so many dependents in order for, for nobody to go hungry and how many people can be supported by the local land base. All of that gets broken uh, when you start doing agriculture because, first of all, all that land, instead of sharing it with millions of other species, and I mean literally millions of other species, you're only sharing
pairing it with one or two. So corn, wheat, and you know maybe some mice is about all that can grow there. Um, and it also means that as you're drawing down all those species and all that soil, um, you don't realize that you're on drawdown. Okay, so you're using up all the resources that are there, funneling them into humans, and eventually it reaches complete collapse where uh, the topsoil is gone, there are no more trees, the water table has dropped too far, the land is completely salinated you know, sal- the, from, from the salt, from um, irrigation, and this is what's happened all across the world. Right now in India, um, almost half of the hand wells no longer work because the water table has dropped so far, yeah. and this again just leads to farmer suicide, complete despair, people getting pushed off their land, and the only place to go is into urban slums. Right. Um, and that is, you know, the final endpoint of agriculture each and every time. You see it around the ancient world, Asia, Europe, Africa, everywhere. This is what happens over and over. You know, you get this big population boom, and then the whole thing collapses. Yeah. And the only reason cause of deforestation yeah. right now in the Amazon is the slashing and burning of, of forests yeah. for, for soy crops. Yeah, I, yeah, it's very bad. And the only reason that, um, well, I think there's two reasons that we don't realize this. One is that starting in the 1950s, uh, humans figured out how to use oil and gas to grow crops, and that's called the Green Revolution, and it's all based on fossil fuel fertilizer. So what it uses is oil and gas feedstocks, and it creates nitrogen that plants can use. Because what should have happened in 1950 was that inevitable crash of population. Um, by 1950, the world was the, the grain-growing regions of the world were pretty well out of topsoil. So that should have been the end. Um, but what happened instead was this green revolution. So people learned to eat oil and gas, yep. and we had a quadrupling of the human population. What is going to happen is still that inevitable population crash. Yep. We are a species on severe overshoot. Um, it's now going to be four times worse because there's four times as many people. And this just creates tremendous misery in poor countries because they've all lost their land. They've lost their sustainable local economies. Um, and, you know, what it's led to is gigantic slums around cities um, all across the world where people have nowhere else to go. Um, this is a pretty bad corner that we've backed ourselves into as a species. There is hope. I mean, there's no reason for us not to address these issues. It's yeah. actually pretty clear what we could do to save it, but I don't see anybody doing the, you know, having the right analysis and then actually trying to put forward the right policies. Um, and that's one reason that I wrote the book is because the people who really care the most, which is environmentalists, um, don't even recognize agriculture as the main problem. Right. Uh, in fact, they keep suggesting this plant-based diet is a way that we are somehow going to save the planet. That is the it's problem. It's what we've done to destroy the planet. We've had 10,000 years. We have trashed the planet. What we have to do now is repair what we've destroyed. Right, exactly. I mean, it's <laughs> the, um, you know, the perception out there of, you know, what's wrong with, you know, uh, with our diet, what's wrong with the environment and everything else you know, the perception is if we really want to go to the extreme of fixing it, we all have to become vegetarians. Yeah, they're just wrong. They don't understand that this is an inherently destructive process. It's a war against the natural world um, and that we're out of soil. I mean, this is the end point of the entire thing. Right. Um, but, you know, you know, I'll give you some hopeful things. If, if we took all of the um, trashed out agricultural land that's essentially east of the Dakotas and we put it back into prairie and grassland, uh, grazed with the appropriate ruminants because you cannot have a prairie without ruminants, just like you can't have a forest without browsers and grazers. You have to have animals or part of these living communities. Right. Anyway, if we took all that land and we put it back into some kind of grassland, the United States would immediately become a net carbon sink. Okay? Mm. And that's with everybody still driving their cars. Mm. Okay? That's, how much, that's how good grass is at sequestering carbon. I mean, they, it, grass can build soil at an incredible rate. And well, there's a lot of basic- potential in grass, too, to be, a, to be a future fuel, future source of fuel for us. 
very very yeah. renewable. Yeah, um, the problem is, is that if you keep taking the you know the perennial growth off the grass, the same kind of degradation will happen over time. Yeah. It doesn't really work as a fuel source. I mean, people are trying really hard to keep this way of life going on you know by whatever means they can think of. But if you extend it out over its lifetime, um, a lot of these things end up being just as destructive. But you know, if we left the grass in place and let the bison and the cows take care of it, uh, in a lot of places we wouldn't even have less food. In fact, we'd have better food because it yeah. wouldn't just be cheap carbohydrate. It would in fact be protein and fat that people need. Which and if if we did this around the world, if we took even 75% of the world's very degraded agricultural land, put it back into the grass and the forest it would prefer to be, um, we can stop global warming in 15 years. All of the carbon that's been released since the beginning of the Industrial Age would be sequestered. Um, wow. So really, this has been 10,000 years of destruction, and we just need to reverse that process and repair, repair, repair. It also means repairing human cultures as well. Um, I mean, it all has to happen together as a piece, but again, the people who really care about these kinds of issues don't have the correct information, and they've been really led astray and pointed in the wrong direction. Yeah, and, you know, who knows how much of that is by design, too, because there's certainly there are quite a few powers that be that stand to benefit from, from, from that approach to things. Yeah, I think a lot of people, and, and you would expect better from people who tend to question, um, but they don't understand that there are six corporations that essentially control the global food supply, and we call them the grain cartels. And so, for instance, Cargill and Continental, between them, control half the wheat. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can name these six corporations, and they control everything. And what they grow is cheap carbohydrate because that's how they make the most money. Um, it's how they've managed to condense all that power, you know, essentially into a monopoly. And every time you buy a soy burger, that's who you're giving your money to. And they are destroying the planet. They are destroying, you know, local subsistence economies the world over. And they are destroying, you know, the prairie in the Midwest along with the Mississippi. Uh, It's just nothing but death and destruction in every direction. Yeah, they're they're going and they're decimating third world, uh, you know, traditional food uh, production and everything else. Yeah, and that's the part of, another part of the myth is that this will somehow feed hungry people, and it's not true because American grain is actually causing starvation around the world. It's not easing it. Right. And one of the problems is that uh, right now we have a system where because there's these very few corporations that control everything, they have a monopoly, and they're able to drive the, the price that they, a farmer can get below the cost of production. So no matter how much that farmer produces, they cannot keep their heads above water. And then the United States government steps in and gives them subsidies. So that's what happens with the farm bill, you know, every few years is, well, how much, you know, how many subsidies are we going to give these farmers? Um, And that money goes directly into the pockets of Monsanto and Cargill and Continental. Um, You know, the people that we love, ha ha. um, (laughs) So they get all the money. The farmers, you know, every year they have to produce more because, you know, every year the price gets driven down further. Um, And so there's this huge glut. So there's all this surplus that they're creating. And then the giant corporations can take that and they do what's called agricultural dumping. So they can go around the world and they can undercut the local farmers. And, you know, Oxfam says that, you know, on the average, they can sell it for half the production costs in other countries. And every year that drives more and more farmers, uh, those local farmers, off their land and into slums or into suicide. And that is, you know, the ultimate goal of all of this is they just want to make more money. And if it means putting people off their land, well, that's not what they're there for. They don't care. So, you know, in any other circumstance, people who, you know, claim to have some kind of leftist value system would see that this was, you know, not about justice at all, but about the continuation of some pretty brutal power arrangements. And yet when it comes to food, somehow this is the arrangement that we're after. And I just have to believe it's ignorance. I mean, what else could explain why we don't understand what's going on? It's, 
any democracy or food activist from around the world will tell you, you know, please get your corporations out of our country. You're killing us. Right. You're just creating more starvation. Uh, but somehow on the left in the United States, we don't seem to understand it. You know, I mean, you should not eat factory farmed meat, but you know, doing that will not stop a single farmer from overproducing corn. Right. And corn is being overproduced because of that monopoly of those six corporations. And then with that giant surplus, it made economic sense to create things like factory farming. But that's the only reason we have factory farming. You know, it's not because cows are supposed to eat corn. They're not. It actually kills them. So this entire system is insane, and it destroys the planet, and it's just condensing more and more power into these, you know, the hands of very, very, very few people around the right. globe. Right, and the alternative to factory farmed meat, of course, is not vegetarianism or veganism. There are many, many farmers that are extremely ethical and uh, and passionate about um, about all of these issues, who go to great lengths and work very hard to try to do the right thing, to raise their animals in fresh air and sunshine, eating foods that are natural to them, which means basically grass. And um, that is an incredibly sustainable way of doing things, and it's an incredibly humane way of doing things. And it's an extremely viable alternative um, that we should all be looking at, uh, you know, to the sort of the factory farmed model. I mean, even when you go into a natural food store uh, and you go to the meat counter, you know, people assume that just because they're buying organic meat, that they're buying something that is automatically good for the planet, which, of course, you and I know is not necessarily true at all. If it was grain-fed or feedlot-fed in any way or shape or form, um, it is a less than optimal option. Yeah, and so people need to be asking. They need to understand the problem, and then they need to be able to ask better questions. You know, when they do go out and start looking for food, um, cows are not designed to eat corn. It will kill them. The only reason it's done is because the corn is now so cheap um, that, you know, it makes economic sense, and cows fed corn will fatten really fast, and it does the same thing to them that it does to us, which is yep. all that carbohydrate just makes them fat. Yeah, take it and, people. <laughs> I know, and so, you know, when you go shopping, um, it, it, organic is not the issue. The issue is, is it on grass? Because you can buy completely organic dairy, for instance, and it's just as much factory farmed as the, you know, the non-organic dairy. The cows spend their lives standing on cement floors, um, eating this really horrible diet that kills them in the end, um, yep. and having to overproduce vast quantities of milk that give them infections. I mean, they're not meant to produce that much milk. No. Um, and so the entire thing is just, you know, an ethical and environmental nightmare from beginning to end. Yeah, organic. On the other hand, different. if you want to try to get grass-fed, you, it's a completely different story because, first of all, it's sequestering carbon. Um, second of all, it's this profound wildlife habitat repair because you've got some kind of perennial polyculture, you know, in, in place, some kind of grassland. It means animals can live there again. Uh, nothing can live in a cornfield except corn. Um, but, you know, once you've repaired that enough that there's, you know, perennial skeleton of grass or forest or both, uh, it means all this wildlife comes back. So nesting birds and, you know, prairie dogs and black-footed ferrets and, you know, everything can come back because they've got a place to live again. It also means that all that nitrogen fertilizer that runs off of wheat and corn and soy fields into the local rivers and into the, the, the water table, uh, there's no need for it. You do not need to fertilize. So that's just over. So right. all of that fossil fuel um, that not only destroys waterways but is inherently destructive um, to the planet, to global warming, is, is no longer necessary. Yep. Um, and the final No more dead zone, this, huh? I know, exactly, which is the size of New Jersey now at the mouth of the Mississippi River. Right. And the, the final piece of miracle here is that it scales up immediately in that farmers can make a living. They can make a profit the first year they switch to grass feeding. And that's incredible because what it means is we don't need the federal government to do anything. Right. All we need is to set up the networks of, you know, consumer-to-farm networks 
uh, create the demand and help people understand it and then make the consumer demand because right. the farmers don't have to take out loans. They don't have to do anything. They don't even need a tractor. Which is immediately repaired. Which is why, of course, everybody needs to read your book. Right, right. <laughs> we, we need to go to another commercial break here. So, everybody, please stick around. We have Lear Keith, the author of The Vegetarian Myth, and you will, we will want to stick around and hear more of this. I, my name is Nora Gaddis, and you're listening to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio. We will be back in just a moment. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. NBC science consultant Dr. Mark Steinberg says every so often you encounter a gem among the dross competing for your attention. Such is the case with Primal Body, Primal Mind, written by Nora Gedgaudis. Primal Body, Primal Mind is a non-fictional excursion into the realm of biology, politics, and self-care that you will never get from formal academic education. It's a nutritional treasure map leading to optimal wellness the way nature intended. A jewel. Tom Hartman, acclaimed author, scholar, and national radio host, says, If you want to really know how your body and brain work, read this book. Go beyond the low-carb and paleo diet to discover the ultimate key to health, a better brain, weight loss, better mood, and a longer life. Primal Body, Primal Mind will show you how you can save more money eating incredibly well than you ever believed possible. You can order the life-changing book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, today. And sign up for Nora Gedgaudis' weekly blog update at www.primalbody-primalmind.com. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're tuned in to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio with host Nora Gedgaudis. Got a question for Nora about today's show? The phone lines are open now at 1-866-472-5792. Toll free, 1-866-472-5792. Now back to our show. Here's Nora. Well, welcome back to the show. We're talking today with Lear Keith, author of The Vegetarian Myth. And, um, you know... The nutritional angle uh, of your book, of course, is one I know very well, and, and I've seen it firsthand, uh, I've seen very firsthand what a vegetarian and vegan diet do to the emotional and physical health and also the brains and nervous systems of those that have eaten this way for a long time. Of course, I, you know, I work with clients uh, every day, and, and I see this stuff. Um, I know what it did uh, for me, uh, or to me, for the, you know, for the short time that I ate that way. Um, by far the most damaged um, health and the most damaged brains and nervous systems that I have ever seen have been the, that of long-term uh, vegetarians and especially vegans. Now, I know that this uh, way of eating took its toll on you. Do you mind being a little more specific about what some of the health issues are that, that uh, you're struggling with? Right. Well, um, like you say, a lot of vegans and vegetarians end up with all kinds of emotional and nervous system problems. Um, I definitely, you know, got the depression thing pretty quick being vegan. And I would say I lost 20 years of my life to that. I didn't know that it had anything to do with what I was eating. And right. everybody kept telling me this was the good thing to eat. This right. is the healthy People way don't to make eat. the connection between what you they eat and how they no feel. You have no idea. And yeah. it's not like you eat one vegan meal and the next day you feel like crap. I mean, if it happened that quickly, you wouldn't do it again. But, you know, when it can take six months or a year to 
to pop up and just start, you know, happening. And actually, you don't realize there's a point that in this that I, did, I actually want to cut in and make really quick because I think that initially, especially like raw food veganism and whatever, can be a very therapeutic diet for a short period of time. That people right. t- will tend, to, especially if you get away from the standard American diet, anything yeah. you can do to deviate from that, you're going to improve. I don't care what it yeah. is. Yeah, no, it's true. It's very but true. With veganism, it's, it's a cleansing diet, but cleansing, of course, does not mean rebuilding. So over time, right. you end yeah. up, of course, depleting all of your reserves, and then and then you go into deficit that deficit, some of which that are very very difficult to reverse. So I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt, but I had to make that point because oh, lots true. of people that get onto the vegetarian thing, they do feel better at first. And they think that they're onto something, and they figure the more they do it, the better they're going to feel. And that's 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 the trap. Yeah, and so a lot of them, I think. I mean, I I know I did this to myself. I was like, but I felt so good. Why can't I feel good now? And you end up blaming, you know, the one little thing that you ate last month. You know, that must be the reason that it's not working anymore. Um, so the depression, anxiety, uh, that whole sort of you know constellation of problems. And I would say that 80% of the email that I get is from recovering vegetarians and vegans who uh, went through that. And they write to me and they say things like, you, know, you saved my life. You gave me my life back. Yeah. You know, it went from black and white to color in one week. Um, and I mean people who were going psychotic, yeah. you know, okay. from being vegan. I mean, that's as extreme sure. as it can get. Um, and, you know, the problem is, you know, number one, you're not getting you're not getting the correct amino acid profile. So, I mean, you know this, but just to make sure your audience hears yeah, it. Right. For instance, if you do not have tryptophan in your diet, you cannot make serotonin. And we all know the role that serotonin plays in depression. Um, and you, you cannot create it from nothing. You've got to eat it. Right, and, and it's not in grains. <laughs> it's not. It's a plant-based diets are very, very poor sources of protein generally. And there are some um, amino acids that they're seriously deficient in. Yeah. Part of the problem with plant-based proteins is not just that they're incomplete, it's that they come wrapped in cellulose. So even if it's there, we can't get to it. Humans right. have no mechanism to digest cellulose. Yeah, I don't we know about you, but I don't ruminants. have four stomachs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> we don't have that you know, vat of bacteria that ferments it for us. So we have no way to get to it. So most of it just passes through. Um, you know, it's, it's locked up in the cellulose. So that's a big problem. Another, of course, is the lack of fat means that your brain is just never going to function correctly. All the serotonin in the world means nothing if it can't actually transmit. So, yep. And that happens, you know, because of fat and especially cholesterol. Yep. Um, so not having any of that in your brain means that um, you're going to feel angry, upset, depressed, suicidal, and you're not going to understand it. I mean, it just seems like, what's wrong with me? I, I mean, I remember we just collapsed when I couldn't find my car keys or my wallet, you know? Right. It's like... And, and I would sit there on, on a pile on the floor, just unable to cope with anything. Life should not be that overwhelming. I mean, there's no reason to feel that bad because you can't find your wallet, you know? Right. <laughs> and I was on a daily level. That's what it was like. Everything was pushing that boulder uphill. And uh, so I get these emails all the time from people where that's the main, one of the main complaints. I think that's one of the big things. And then the eating disorders. And this is another one of my huge concerns for these young girls. Is yep. One of the things that happens when you have low tryptophan especially is um, you, you can get into an eating disorder. Oh, and zinc. Zinc depletion. And zinc, zinc, yeah, which of course is, there's a lot of zinc in meat and there's not a lot in animal products and uh, plants. Plant foods, and, and the few places that, that there are, like pumpkin seeds or whatever, bound up in phytic acid. You know, bound up in phytates. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you're not, you can't get to it. You know, right. the phytates are grabbing every bit that they can. They're fighting back. People, plants don't want to be eaten either. Exactly. And that's the, you know, we have to understand that that plants have developed all kinds of ways not to be digested. Yeah. And they don't have teeth and nails and feet to run away from you, so they create chemical defenses. That's exactly it. Yep. So and this is another problem is these eating disorders. And, and I mean, I, I've met so many women now who've had this 
trajectory where you know they start as vegetarian or vegan, and then within six months they've developed a full-blown eating disorder, mm-hmm. and that's not emotional. That is biochemical, and it's because especially like, yep. it's the zinc and the tryptophan. Yep. And I've watched this in my own extended family now, and I was absolutely helpless to do anything about it. You know, yep. I knew everything that was going on for this young girl, and not a thing I could do. Yeah. And this it happened to I me mean. too. Yeah. Yeah. And I know so many people now. First, after reading my book, they're like, "I never put it together," but you're right. You know, three months after becoming vegetarian was when my anorexia really kicked in. Yeah. Like, yeah, well, that's why. So I, you know, I get a lot of those emails as well. Um, and it's the kind of thing where you always have to be careful of it, even when it's gone. Um, you know, it sort of goes into remission. But, I mean, even if I don't eat enough protein for four or five hours, I can feel it start to coming on again. Yep. And it's that tryptophan thing, you know. Yep. And then I just remind myself, it's like, you'll feel better. <laughs> eat some real food. And it will, you will be fine in half an hour. Right. But it really is, it, it can take, if, if you've ever been afflicted with any of these things, you know, it's your weak link, and especially because I started so young. I, you know, it's one of those things that's kind of semi-permanent for me. Yeah. So I just have to be really careful about, you know, making sure I eat enough protein yeah. every single day. Yeah. Um, so that's a big problem. Uh, another thing yeah. that will happen is your, your joints will wear out really quickly because you're not getting minerals. Right. And the few minerals that you are absorbing, uh, again, the phytates get in the way. They will latch onto those minerals and take them well, right out of your body. You need to be body. producing enough hydrochloric acid, too, which, by the way, yeah. herbivores don't produce hydrochloric acid. You know, uh, carnivores yeah. do, and we, we make it, and we, we need that to absorb minerals. Yeah, so. and then another problem that I did to myself was, um, you know, when you're on that blood sugar roller coaster, there's a lot of adrenaline involved. Yep, and in the presence cortisol. of adrenaline, your 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 uh, your stomach will down. stop producing hydrochloric acid. You can yeah. permanently damage your stomach's ability to do this. So I have to take um, betaine hydrochloride with every meal, which yeah. has been miraculous. I mean, it's really cured my problem, but it's been a long, slow recovery. I still have to take it every day. Yep. And so I meet a lot of vegans who are like, oh, I've got all these stomach problems. And I'm like, let me guess. It feels like a cannonball that won't, it never empties. And they're like, yeah. I was like, you've got blood sugar problems, and this is what you've done. Um, yeah. So that's, And then, of course, the blood sugar problems are a whole nother, um, you know, serious concern where if you're, you're not eating anything but carbohydrate, you know, the human body was not designed to handle that much sugar. And you can try to make yourself feel better by saying, oh, it's complex carbohydrate. It right. doesn't matter. It's just sugar at the end of the day. And, I, you know, the amount of sugar, I, was, I didn't touch white sugar for 20 years, literally. I wouldn't eat ketchup if it had white sugar in it. That's right. how pure I was. But I didn't know. And I was eating probably the equivalent of three to four cups of sugar every day in my brown rice and my whole wheat flour. Um, and so I ended up with really bad blood sugar problems. Another few years, I would have been out and out diabetic, but I can only handle, you know, about 40 grams of carbohydrate a day before I feel really sick. So, yeah, yeah. you know, that's permanent, people. It doesn't go away. Once you blow through your insulin receptors, they don't come back. And all of this, like I see these young people doing this to themselves. I'm like, I know where you're going to end in 10 years. You're going to have to eat every two hours and then every hour and a half and then every hour and then nothing but semi-permanent snacking all day long because you feel like crap and you don't understand why. Right. And it's the blood sugar. And then all the problems that come from having too much insulin in your bloodstream all the time. So the heart disease and the inflammation and you know, the damage to your arteries and Food you know, damage to your, issues that all, you develop. I know. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are some of the things. And then the soy brings a whole other level. Um, you know, one of the problems with soy is that it will damage your thyroid because it's, it's a known goitrogen. This isn't, you know, some strange thing that I came up with. They've known since the 30s that it will damage animal thyroid. So I killed my thyroid eating soy. And um, I uh, also it can cause tremendous problems both for men and women because of the phytoestrogen load. Are you uh, Hashimoto's? No, no, but I am one of those, you know, thyroid 
barely putting out any kind of, uh, okay. so, you okay. know, it's just really, it's I'm what they call like a low normal, but it's so low that it really is right. just barely pumping along. And of course, I've got the adrenal exhaustion and, okay. you know, the sort of typical things. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I've been tested for Hashimoto's, and thank God I didn't, I didn't do it that bad. But, I mean, you, you know, you meet vegans with who have that, and they don't right. understand why. And, and like, they have no idea. Boy, it's pretty yeah. only 25 years old, and they've already got some kind of crazy thyroid thing going on, and they've got arthritis in their hips and their knees. You're, like, you're 24 years old. Yeah. Do you really think you should be falling apart at this point? You were supposed to last until you were at least 80. Like, yep. Can we at least admit this isn't working? And I know it's so hard to have to hear that when you believe in something. But So the phytoestrogen well, load, uh, you know, it will really mess with your sex hormones. So, I mean, oh, everything yeah. from decreased libido on into you know, endometriosis. So yeah. my sister ended up with endometriosis from the soy, had to have a hysterectomy. Um, I, I was, I mean, my reproductive system was really a mess when I was a vegan and I had no idea why. And yeah. my, it was, um, it was so dramatic for me because I found out all this information about soy and I sort of mulled it over for a few months and finally decided, all right, I'm going to try this. And I took, I went absolutely cold turkey. September 1st, I took all the soy out of my diet and um, it was amazing because, I mean, I, I was not having, I hadn't had regular menstrual periods for 20 yeah. years. Like, I just thought I was weird, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I took all the soy out of my diet and within three weeks, I had a period and I have not missed one since. Literally yeah, yeah. not missed one. And it was, it was so dramatic that there's no, I mean, it was the soy. <laughs> No question. Oh, no kidding. So, I know I spent several pages ragging on soy in my book, but yeah. we, we have to go to our last oh. uh, commercial break here. So um, I'm sorry to have to, to, to put you on hold for just a second. <laughs> but everybody, you're listening to uh, Lear Keith, the author of The Vegetarian Myth, and I'm Nora Gadgaudis. You're listening to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio. Please stick around. We'll be back in just a minute. NBC science consultant Dr. Mark Steinberg says every so often you encounter a gem among the dross competing for your attention. Such is the case with Primal Body, Primal Mind, written by Nora Gedgaudis. Primal Body, Primal Mind is a non-fictional excursion into the realm of biology, politics, and self-care that you will never get from formal academic education. It's a nutritional treasure map leading to optimal wellness the way nature intended. A jewel. Tom Hartman, acclaimed author, scholar, and national radio host, says, If you want to really know how your body and brain work, read this book. Go beyond the low-carb and paleo diet to discover the ultimate key to health, a better brain, weight loss, better mood, and a longer life. Primal Body, Primal Mind will show you how you can save more money eating incredibly well than you ever believed possible. You can order the life-changing book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, today. And sign up for Nora Gedgaudis' weekly blog update at www.primalbody-primalmind.com. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're tuned in to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio with host Nora Gedgaudis. Got a question for Nora about today's show? The phone lines are open now at 1-866-472-5792. Toll free, 1-866-472-5792. Now back to our show. Here's Nora. Well, welcome back to the show. Well, we have today... Lear Keith, uh, the author of the wonderful book, The Vegetarian Myth, which I want everybody listening to this show to go out and read. And if you have already read it, go out and read it again, because <laughs> it's an absolutely incredible uh, and very, very important book. Well, um, you know, I've been, uh, we've been, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, on break, we were talking about, 
you know, how it is that you talk to people who, who are on vegetarian diets and, and trying to get people sort of turned around without turning them off. And, you know, doing what I do in, in a healthcare sort of capacity, I've been fairly successful actually in helping vegetarians turn their diets and health around. And it's not too difficult to reason um, with them. Um, you know, understanding where they're coming from through the sort of the moral, the political, and the health-related, and even spiritual aspects of why vegetarianism might not be necessarily right for them. But the one hurdle um, that I've found, I don't know about you, but that's hardest to get over, or, and certainly the hardest to reason with, is that emotional piece around the whole idea of animals and the psychological idea of meat. You know what I mean? How, yeah. do, you, how do you address this? Well, sometimes I just tell them my own story and how dramatic it was when I started to eat meat again. Yeah. And I will tell them that it was a long, slow, hard, emotional process. That, and you know, I, even six weeks later, I was still crying about it. You know, and it took me really a year to settle into a kind of a new identity about it. Um, and it's really easy to create food taboos. Um, it happens across every culture. Yeah. And for whatever reason, we are, you know, as a species, we're really. Um, it's it's kind of a vulnerability where it's really easy for us to make some things impure. You know, and it really is about purity, you know, that it feels impure to eat certain things. Right. I mean, when I ate my first eat meat meal after 20 years of not, I couldn't even put it on my own, you know, my own dishes. I had to eat it in a plastic container with a plastic fork that I was going to throw out. Yeah. And I suddenly understood kosher in a whole new way. You know, it's like, I get it. My, my, my dishes felt polluted. Yeah. You know, my beautiful cast iron frying pan that had never had meat in it, never even had eggs in it, um, you know, it was going to be polluted. And I would really... Um, caution all of us uh, not to have that kind of polluted attitude about any food because it's really only lending uh, our brains toward more cult-like thinking. Yeah. It's not going to help us um, you know, in any way. I, I actually, I, I've had the experience. Um, I've never hunted, actually. Um, and that's a whole other subject. I guess I'll, I'll skirt that subject for right now. But I have had the experience of looking into the eyes of something that ended up on my dinner plate later. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that there was such a profound, um, there was like a sanctity in the experience of eating that meat. It was, I experienced eating in a very, very different way than anybody would who, you know, just sort of grabbed something that, you know, had been shrink-wrapped, cooked it up and, and uh, you know, and took off and, you know, on their way to work or whatever, or just sort of threw some lettuce in a plate and made a salad and ate that. And I think it's an aspect of eating that has really, you know, one of the things that's really clear to me is that uh, is that we've really lost a grasp of where it is our food actually comes from. And um, I think that there is something uh, very real in that, in the way that we take food into our bodies. Um, something about that that definitely impacts our health and impacts our psychological well-being. And uh, it, it's, it seems a little more intangible, but having a very, you know, looking upon, you know, meat is not something filthy, but something sacred. Understanding that this, that the life, an animal, you know, gave its life for you, and that someday, perhaps if there is a real cycle of life, you in turn will serve as food for something else. That's the way things are. Right. You know? And I think that any sustainable culture really has to start with that recognition because there's not actually any way out. You know, I tried for 20 years to find a way out, and there wasn't one. I was just outsourcing the violence to places that I couldn't see it. So I had no idea, but, you know, you look at a wheat field, and it's a clear cut of grass, just like a clear cut of trees, you know, strikes horror in our souls. A clear cut of grass should do the same thing. Yeah. Um, You know, the world does not want to be a wheat field. 
Right. It would really like to and be it a can. prairie. Right. Yeah. It can. I mean, it won't survive. So. Right. Well, there's there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of places on this earth where it is just simply not possible to grow crops. But there's yeah. plenty of scrub brush and plenty of grasses and things like that that certainly you know livestock can feed on uh, in sustained yeah, populations. Absolutely, and I, what I like to say is that, you know, we can be part of the death that's killing all life, or we can be part of the death that's the cycle of life that supports life, but there is no death-free option. Right. Um, so those are our only choices. Those are the only choices that, that a living planet is going to offer us. So we can kill everything, and we can keep doing agriculture, or we can repair those uh, living communities and, once again, take our food from inside them. Right. And that is what the planet is asking us to do, is to, to become participants again in, right. in this planet. Rejoin that of, cycle of life and recognize yeah. our part in it. But it's yep. very hard, because I think for a lot of us who have those impulses, you know, we get misdirected by kind of vegetarian um, ethos, that, you know, the... Yeah. Kind of black and white thinking that is, yeah. you know, very, um, you know, it's it's the psychology of an adolescent, and so it, it makes sense to me that a lot of us do this as teenagers, um, because you know you tend to have black and white thinking when you're that age. That's but true. As we get older, we need to understand uh, there's a lot a lot more going into this than just you know what is that on my plate. That we have to ask way bigger questions to get to true sustainability. Now, one question I, I have to get uh, get your take on before before we go because. Um, you know, this is something, of course, a lot of people are going to be barking at the radio that, that maybe have, uh, you know, an opposing viewpoint. What's your take on the China study? I mean, I'll bet you get hit with that one a lot. Yeah, and I really wish people would read it more carefully because it's terrible. It's terrible science. It is terrible I mean, science. Just t- step by step, it doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. And bizarre, Lots of selective data. <laughs> yeah, and things like, okay, so we're going to take this, you know, industrial product called whey powder, and we're going to give it to animals, and what do you know, they get cancer. Well, what you predicted they're going to get cancer. If you take, you know, milk protein and you heat it to 800 degrees or whatever in a, you know, a small tray and, you know, dehydrate it, and of course it's going to, I mean, it, we know that it creates toxic substances. If you heat right. anything to that degree, it, it turns out toxic. So not a surprise you would feed that to animals and get cancer. I mean, that's absolutely what you would expect. And yet he's able to say, because of this, it means that... Oh, well, he also had an agenda. The guy, he's a, he's a vegan himself or a vegetarian yeah, I know. himself. So, I know. You know. But the science just makes no sense. There's a lot of really good articles on the web uh, that take it step by step, and we'll just show you exactly how yeah. bad this was. This do, you, do you have a website? I think Chris Masterjohn did a really great article. That's about the one it. that I always tell people to go to because he did a, a marvelous, yeah, marvelous job at that. Yeah. Do you, do you have so, that website by any chance? I think it's called Cholesterol Health, maybe Cholesterol and Health. Okay. You know what? If anybody out there, you can just type in China Study. Master John, because Chris oh. Master John, that's his last name. You will find it immediately. Great. Yep, that's he's perfect. M-A-S-T-E-R-J-O-H-N. Yep. Yeah. He's got a great website all about how cholesterol is really, really good for people. And he speaks from experience. He tried to be a vegetarian. He was a vegan, I think, for two years. And he started losing his mind, literally. Like, he was one of those people who was so depressed, he was, and he was getting psychotic, and he knew something was wrong. And, um, you know, decided to save his life by going ahead and eating a piece of turkey and everything changed. Like overnight, he was a new person. Yeah. And that was how he got into all of this was just from really, oh, and he had like 23 cavities in his mouth. I mean, his, his whole body was falling apart, but especially the emotional health was just reaching a real crisis for him. And he went ahead and it was just like the animal knowledge in his body was, I've got to eat something else. And he did yeah. it. Um, so now he's very, very committed to getting out, um, you know, better information to people so that yeah. they don't do the same thing to themselves, you know, uselessly. Well, Lear, I wonder if you realize how important a book you've written and, I, and really how many lives you've probably already saved by your message. I mean it. 
um, through all of your pain and soul searching, you've really created something deeply special in the vegetarian myth. I only hope that your detractors in the vegetarian and vegan communities have the courage to read it and the integrity to honestly reflect upon what you have to say and hopefully, too, the wisdom to use what you've written in it to make a better life for themselves and make a better life for the rest of this planet. And uh, I really want to say thank you, thank you, too, for, for being here as a guest on my show to shape, to share all of this with us and, you know, and, you know, the courageous person you are, really. You, know, you well, rock. Thank you. Thank you, Nora. You're so welcome. How can people uh, find your website? Well, you have to know how to spell my name. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so easy. But the easiest thing is just type vegetarian myth into Google. You'll find my website. Lear Keith. It's L I E. R-R-E, and that's like Pierre with an L. It makes it a little, <laughs> a little easier to remember. But LeahKeith.com is my website. But just Vegetarian Myth, you'll find me. Wonderful. And uh, I also want to thank all of you listeners for being here today and hope that you're going to tune in again next week for another hour of Primal Body, Primal End Radio. So until then, everybody, remember, if it wouldn't look like food to somebody wandering around 40,000 years ago with a loincloth and a spear, it's not food for you now either. This is Nora Gadgaudis. You've been listening to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you all next week. I would like to thank my sponsors, the EEG Institute, offering the most trusted and respected source of information and training for neurofeedback, truly world leaders in the field. You can reach the EEG Institute at www.eeginfo.com or at 818 818- Four five six five nine six five. I would also like to thank the Nutritional Therapy Association, the NTA, for their generous sponsorship. The NTA is the best, most trustworthy and reliable source of foundational nutritional education and nutritional therapist training here in the U.S. and possibly the known universe. I just can't say enough good things about this organization. You can find the Nutritional Therapy Association at www.nutritionaltherapy.com or you can call 1-800-918-9798. That's 1-800-918-9798. Tell Marcy Nora sent you. Thanks, too, to Biotics Northwest, the source for exceptional healthcare practitioner quality supplements for every health professional. You can reach them at www.bioticsnorthwest.com or at 1-800-636-6913. Also, be sure to visit my website at www.primalbody-primalmind.com where you can also get my book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, Empower Your Health, Your Total Health, The Way Evolution Intended and Didn't. Thanks again for listening to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio, hosted by Nora Gedgaudis. Come back for another great program next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. And have a great week.